1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. A person should think of us, that's Christian leaders, Paul and Apollos and Cephas, a person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bring both to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each from God. The Corinthian church has been fractured along partisan lines based upon individual preferences for this or that particular brand name celebrity teacher. And a byproduct of this factionalism is that the Corinthians deny themselves the fullness of the riches of the gospel by enjoying one of God's teachers to the exclusion of the others. They want to inflate their egos by identifying themselves with some leaders and disparaging others, thus creating a kind of class system within their Christianity and within their church. They they have kind of a a hierarchy that's been built upon worldly wisdom, if you will. You have the spiritually elite who would be thought to be connected to this or that particular teacher. And then, on the other hand, you would have the spiritually inferior who would be attached to this or that particular teacher. And so we can kind of see why Paul has been arguing the Corinthians into unity since chapter 1. That's the main idea of the first four chapters of Corinthians. is Paul is saying, be the church, be unified. He's calling them to unity. He's doing so by undercutting these systems by which they divide themselves. And it's this same task that he sets his hand to at the beginning of chapter 4, which is our text today. He's going to deal with some of the critics in the Corinthian church that have dismissed him as an insignificant teacher. They think of him as some kind of scrub and think of themselves as kings. And so we're going to see at least two ideas come together in the five verses that we examine today. The first idea is the true nature of Christian leadership. That's Christian leaders are servants. This idea was started in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 3 with the the picture of the farm, if you remember. We're also going to see the theme of ultimate judgment, the ultimate judgment of Christian leadership. A theme started in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 3 uh, with the picture of the building. And it'll kind of find its uh, culmination today. The argument of this paragraph is quite easily traced. Paul changes the metaphor from household, I'm sorry, he changes his metaphor from uh, the farm and the building to a picture of household servants that are entrusted with the divine mysteries. Paul says that the Corinthians are to regard him and Apollos as servants. And the new point he makes since he's just said that he and all the teachers belong to the Corinthians and all Christians, is that he's not ultimately accountable to them. That their judgments of him matter little in light of God's ultimate judgment. 
And so what we'll learn today, what I hope to impress upon you this morning, is that we also are going to be held accountable ultimately to God. The exhortation will be to be the church and to be found faithful. Be found faithful. We're going to talk about how we should think about leaders, what is required of leaders, and the judgment and evaluation of leaders. Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would use your word to change us. Pray that you would help us to hear what it is you have to say to us this morning. Help us to focus our hearts and our thoughts on you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 4 and, I'm sorry, chapter 4 and verse 1. A person should think of us in this way as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. So we are to think of Christian leaders as servants, or you might have the word stewards, or managers. And so I think we do well to ask the question, what is it that stewards or managers do? Anthony Thistleton writes, This office of estate managers normally included responsibility for overseeing a household budget, purchasing accounts, resource allocation, collection of debts, and general running of the establishment, but only as instructed within guidelines agreed upon by the employer or the head of the house. Managers, stewards, servants don't own anything. They look after someone else's stuff. They don't act on their own volition. They obey the owner of the house and carry out his will. Likewise, Christian leaders, elders, do not own the church. It's Jesus' church. Pastors, good ones, obey God and carry out His will. And so we want to rub in a lesson from last week once more, that Christian leaders are servants, only servants. Now we might ask, what exactly is it that Christian leaders are responsible to manage or steward? What are they stewards of? And the text tells us the mysteries of God. And at first glance, that seems really unclear and mystical. Pastors are stewards of the mysteries of God. Makes it sound like I'm a sorcerer or something. But we're good readers. And so we know that Paul has filled up the word mystery with gospel content in chapter 2. If you remember the mysteries of God or God's hidden wisdom predestined for our glory before the ages began, it's simply the Christian gospel, which heralds a crucified Messiah and appears to those without the Holy Spirit of God as utter foolishness. It is this message that we have been entrusted with. It is the gospel that teaches us where we came from, what our real problem is, and how it's solved. It tells us that God has created everything, all that is, and that we, men and women, bear His image. That we were created to live in perfect relationship with Him and one another. And yet our our first parents, seduced by their sinful desires to be God rather than to be like God, rebelled against God following their hearts rather than listening to God's voice. And as a consequence, they ushered evil into the world through their sinful disobedience. Consequently, the world is not as it should be, and neither are we. 
we are marked by brokenness. Death breathes down each one of our necks. Pain and decay and deterioration are our part of life. All as a product of our sin, of our rejection of God. Moreover, we deserve the eternal wrath of God for our revolt against Him. The suffering experienced in this world appears as a comfort in light of the justice that awaits the unrepentant sinner. Physical death is but a picture of spiritual life and serves as a preview of the horror our sins have earned us for eternity. In some, humanity has a very big problem. Our sinfulness separates us from the source of goodness and glory. Our wrongdoing separates us from the God we were made to know and love. It's against this bleak and dark backdrop that the light of hope enters the story by entering the world. God the Son takes on flesh and lives as a man. Jesus, fully God and fully man, lives the perfect life we were supposed to live and absorbs the just eternal wrath of God we earned by dying a substitutionary death on the cross for us. In a nutshell, Jesus solves our problem by living and dying in our place. That's the gospel in four words. It's just Jesus in my place. It's not the whole story, though. Jesus rose from the dead in order to prove His person, His power, and the effectiveness of His sacrifice. And He's promised to return and restore all things. He's promised to make this earth into heaven. Anticipating His death, Jesus said of Himself in Mark 10.45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many and in John eleven twenty five through 26 Jesus says of Himself, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in Me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. I think one of my favorite things to do is at a funeral, not that I like funerals, I didn't want to sound morbid there, but, but one of my favorite things to say at a funeral is, is whoever is in front of this pulpit in a casket, my favorite thing is to say their name in this sentence, and I'll just use the name John, and say, John is not dead! Because it's a beautiful truth. And it flies in the face of the world's wisdom. It is the hope of the gospel. That physical death is not the termination of life. But to someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, to someone who has not been wakened to the deep spiritual realities around them, to say that as a body lays in front of me, that that person is alive with Christ seems to be madness. See, that the message of Christianity requires a revolutionary work of the Holy Spirit to be understood and believed as the wisdom of God. It's God's Spirit who unravels the mystery and creates faith within us. D.A. Carson explains well 
the mysteries that are entrusted to God's managers. It says this, Paul is not saying that the gospel is mysterious, but that in some ways it was hidden before the coming of Jesus Christ and has now been revealed. The gospel itself is the content of this mystery. God's wisdom summed up under the burden of Paul's preaching is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So what is it that Christian leaders are stewards or managers of? God's message of hope and restoration and salvation. God's word. It's the gospel that we are stewards of. But what is required of Christian leaders in this stewardship of the gospel? Look at verse 2. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. Christian leaders are required to be faithful to the gospel and God's word. What it means to be a servant of Christ is to be obligated to promote the gospel of the crucified Messiah by word and example. This is absolutely fundamental. There is no valid form of Christian leadership that does not throb with this mandate. The servants of Christ are entrusted with the gospel and all of their service turns on making the gospel known and on encouraging the people of God by word, example, and discipline to live it out. What God demands of his stewards, his managers, is loyalty to the message and mission of Jesus Christ. Because it is through God's word, correctly taught, that God desires to create and cultivate faith and godliness among his people. God does not require of leaders intelligence, good looks, or charm. Lucky for me. But simple, steadfast faithfulness to His Word. He does not require creativity, but faithfulness to His Word. Faithfulness to the original. This is why the the lists of qualifications for Christian leadership in the New Testament are varied and focus on character rather than capabilities. The qualifications of a church leader or an elder, pastor, are centered on who a person is more than what he does. Christian leaders are to be marked by lives that have clearly been transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lives that have a heavenward trajectory. So don't miss this truth. There's nothing remarkable about the qualifications for an elder or a pastor. The the most remarkable thing about the lists of qualifications in the New Testament is that they are quite unremarkable. The the qualifications of an elder or Christian leader are things that are required of each and every Christian, with the exception of two. Not a recent convert and able to teach. Notice also that all Christians are called to be marked by lives that have clearly been transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, lives that have a heavenward trajectory. I mean, remember, that's part of the Corinthian problem in the first four verses of chapter 3 that Paul's addressing here. He's saying, your lives don't seem to be changed. You're still living like mere humans instead of spiritual people who have been transformed by the gospel of grace. All that to say that leaders are not a special 
priestly class, all right? Rather, what's required in some sense of all believers is peculiarly required of leaders of believers. This is why Paul's able to say in verse 16, I urge you to imitate me. He's saying, follow me as I follow Jesus. I'm modeling to you what Christianity ought to look like. Leaders are to be models of faithfulness, and it's faithfulness to which all Christians are called. There's also a sense in which all of us, not just Christian leaders, are stewards of the mysteries of God. If you are a Christian, you are a manager of the gospel. You, like the leaders you follow, have been entrusted with the truth of God. You are responsible for living a transformed life that is faithful to the message and the mission of the gospel. And so the question on the exam on the last day is the same for the church elder as it is for the church member. Were you trustworthy or faithful to the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Will you be found faithful before God? And are you living today in light of that final day? This is what Paul is getting at. He's telling the Corinthians that there is ultimately only one assessment of him that matters, and it's not theirs. Let's look at verse 3. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself. But I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praise will come to each one from God. What does this mean? Does, this, does it mean that we cannot make any judgments about anyone or anything? Does it mean that you and I can do whatever we want without any accountability? Does it mean that if I became addicted to drugs and left my family and wanted to continue as your pastor, that you would have to let me because after all, we shouldn't judge? No. This section is not teaching us that we cannot make judgments. Right? Paul's getting ready in a second here to give the Corinthians a really hard time about not making a judgment in chapter 5. And he is judging them. Leah Carson comments on this. No thoughtful reader can suppose that Paul is abolishing all functions of judgment in the church. After all, in the next chapter of this epistle, he severely reprimands the church for failing to take decisive disciplinary action in a case of immorality. The disciplinary authority of the church extends even to leaders. In the last two chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul clearly expects the believers in Corinth to exercise discipline over the false apostles before he arrives in town and feels constrained to take dramatic action himself. Furthermore, surely no one can imagine here that Paul insists that Christians have no obligation whatsoever to judge themselves, to examine and test the reality and consistency of their allegiance to Christ. 
Although no Christian's opinion of himself or herself has ultimate importance, that does not stop Paul from saying, in right circumstances, as he does in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. If we roam even more broadly through the Scriptures, it's easy enough to find passages that prohibit judging and then to discover still others that command it. For example, on the one hand, we find Jesus saying, do not judge or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. On the other hand, Jesus says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. This running tension is very strong throughout the New Testament. There's much written on what might be called judgmentalism. And at the same time, chapter after chapter exhorts believers to be discerning, to distinguish right from wrong, to pursue what is best, to exercise discipline in the church, so on and so forth. Functions that demand the proper use of judgment. In other words, we must and we do make judgments. But we must do so by the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of the world. We should always recognize our fallibility when we are making evaluations. The point here is that we are to be faithful in humbly exercising gracious and just judgments in contrast to what the Corinthians have done here. Furthermore, when making judgments, we need to examine situations according to God's criteria rather than our own. See, it's this error that Paul is strongly correcting in verses 3 through 5. The Corinthians have been evaluating him, not with grace or according to God's wise criteria, but according to their own worldly criteria. The the Corinthians are looking at Paul and saying, he's not really a great speaker, he's came to us in weakness, there's nothing really impressive about him, and so let's dismiss him. They're writing him off as an inferior teacher to their preferred gurus. They've cast judgment on him. And Paul is forcefully correcting their misunderstanding of Christian leadership and of their authority over him. First, Christian leaders will not ultimately be evaluated by their brilliant speech, wit, or charm, but by whether or not they were faithful in managing God's message and mission. Secondly, even though it's true that Paul, along with Apollos and Cephas, belong to the church and are accountable to the church, their accountability is not ultimately to the church but to the God whose mysteries they steward. Moreover, the Corinthian assessment of Paul is neutered of any validity since Paul has rightly judged them to be worldly. Remember at the beginning of chapter 3, he tells them, Brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. You are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, Are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? The Corinthians, acting as mere humans, had judged Paul by the wisdom of the age rather than the wisdom of God, thus rendering their judgment superfluous. Paul's words in chapter 2, verse 14, actually anticipate his words to the Corinthians here. It says, The person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. 
Simply put, Paul doesn't care how the Corinthians have evaluated his ministry because they are living as those without the Spirit. And their judgment has been made from a worldly and a merely human perspective. Paul cares for only one person's evaluation. There's only one person whose well done means anything to him. And in comparison to the well done of God, the approval or disapproval of any human court means nothing. Paul believes this to the extent that he doesn't even trust his own evaluation of himself. Right, Verse 3, the second part of it, he says, In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul understands that he, like us, is prone to bias evaluations when it comes to judging ourselves and dubs our self-evaluation unimportant in light of God's judgment. So feeling good about yourself or about your ministry has no ultimate significance. Paul is saying his conscience is clear, but that a clear conscience does not make him innocent. Having a peace about decisions that you make doesn't make you innocent. Anthony Thistleton comments, The main point is that human judgment remains fallible and inadequate, whether it be positive or negative, or whether it be Paul's or another human agent's. Paul does not therefore advocate a thick-skinned indifference to public opinion. His point is a different one, namely its fallibility, relativity, and limits, which make it an unreliable guide on which to depend. Everything must be left with God. In the last analysis, one should not give privilege to one's own introspective assessments. In other words, don't trust everything you think. Only one judgment about your guilt or innocence matters ultimately. And this knowledge of God, this knowledge that only one judgment matters, is entirely freeing. It's freeing for Paul and it's freeing for us. Let's look at verse 5. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bring both to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. Paul, by virtue of his focus on the ultimate evaluation from God, is free from the tyranny of popular opinion. He is free of living in order to please others primarily. He's free from a fear of man. To look to God alone is to be safe from the snare of the fear of man. To to trust in Him supremely To look to Him for approval alone is freeing. Looking to God alone frees us from caring too much about what others think. John Ortberg tells a story that is helpful. He says this, Many years ago, I was walking with a couple of friends down Newport Beach, a beach in Southern California. Two of us were on staff together at a church. One was an elder at the same church and uh, another a friend. We walked past a bar where a fight had spilled out into the street, just like in an old western. Several guys were beating up on another guy, and he was bleeding from the forehead, and we knew we had to do something. So we went over to break up the fight. He says, I don't think we were very intimidating. 
all we did was walk over and say, hey, you guys, cut that out. It didn't do much good. But then all of a sudden, they looked at us with fear in their eyes. The guys who had been beating up on the one guy stopped and started to slink away. I didn't know why until I turned around, looked behind us, and saw what had happened. Out of the bar had come the biggest man I think I'd ever seen. He was something like six, seven, maybe 300 pounds, maybe 2% body fat, just huge. We called him Bubba. Not to his face, but afterwards when we talked about him. Bubba didn't say a word. He just stood there and flexed. You could tell he was hoping they would try and have a go at him. All of a sudden, my attitude was transformed. I turned around and said, you'd better not let me catch you coming around here again. I was a different person because I had a great big bubba, he says. I was ready to confront with resolve and firmness. I was released from anxiety and fear. I was filled with boldness and confidence. I was ready to help somebody who needed helping. I was ready to serve somebody who needed served. Why? Because I had Bubba. I was convinced I was not alone, that Bubba would keep me safe. He says, if I were convinced that Bubba were with me 24 hours a day, I would, have f f I would have a fundamentally different approach to my life. If I knew Bubba was behind me all day long, you wouldn't want to mess with me. But Bubba's not with me all day long. I can't count on Bubba. Again and again, the writers of Scripture pose this question for us. How big is your God? Again and again, we are reminded that one who is greater than Bubba has come. And you don't have to wonder whether or not he'll show up. He's always there. So you don't have to live your life in hiding. You have a great big God. And so this Godward orientation in service and in trust frees us from the tyranny of people-pleasing. It frees us from the fear of man. We are engaged with serving and protected by one who is so much greater than Bubba. You see, the evaluating criteria for Paul and for us is singular. It is faithfulness to the mystery entrusted to him and us by God. It is faithfulness to the gospel. When we live our lives with our eyes locked on Christ, considering the only assessment that really matters, which is his assessment of us, we are freed to live confidently and fearlessly. When we live with this eschatological perspective, we are able to confidently live in light of what God wants for us. We're confidently able to live to please him rather than somebody else or even ourselves. We forget who it is we really live to please when we become more concerned with the acceptance and applause of people than the praise of God. We forget who it is we really live to please when we are constantly trying to please ourselves. 
when we make self-esteem our ultimate goal, then we forget whose servants we are, who it is we must strive to please. Remembering that we are God's managers of his gospel, that the faithfulness God requires of us has been provided for us in Christ, that the judgment that awaits us on the last day is not condemnation, but praise will inspire you to look forward to judgment day. Because of our crucified Messiah, we can, together with Paul, look forward to God's evaluation of us. I mean, that's the shock of verse 5. Did you catch it? So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praise will come to each one from God. Verse 5 comes with a surprise. Like one of those old cereal boxes that used to have toys inside. Paul describes the day when the Lord comes as a day when motives and attitudes will be revealed. And so we expect to read verse 5 this way. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts and Each one will receive his rebuke and correction from God. But that's not how the text reads. No, no. It it says, and then praise will come to each one from God. This is not what we expect. This is shocking. Friends, if you have been united to Jesus by faith, God will praise you. It's unthinkable. This is the beautiful scandal of the Christian gospel. That Jesus gets everything we deserve. Wrath. And we get everything He deserves. Praise, honor, relationship with God. This is the glory predestined for us before the ages began. This is the good news of the Gospel. And it's astounding. Praise from God. Let's pull on the the thread and bring all of this stuff together. Two things we need to learn from this text quickly. Uh, We need to seek to be found faithful in our evaluation of all things that we're making judgments about, but especially of leaders. When we evaluate pastors, our overarching concerns should be rooted in the wisdom of God, and the focus of our questions should be, are they faithful? Not, am I entertained? We are not to stand in judgment over our leaders on the basis of the whims and whimsy of our own preferences, or those preferences of the world around us. Rather, we are to be found faithful in humbly exercising gracious and just judgment based on God's criteria revealed to us in Scripture, recognizing our own fallibility and our ultimate accountability before God. Secondly, God's servants, whom He has entrusted with the gospel, will be judged by God, and His judgment is the only one that ultimately matters. 
Knowing this truth empowers us to live to please God free from the tyranny of popular opinion. Those who are united to Jesus by faith, that's Christians, that's church leaders and church members, will be found faithful and pray, be praised by God when Jesus returns to judge sin. Because Jesus came the first time to bear our judgment when we believe in him, we can look forward to Jesus' return when he brings judgment. Because rather than receiving correction and rebuke and wrath, we will receive grace. We will receive the praise of God. And so the question I have for you this morning is this. Do you look forward to the day of the Lord? Or do you dread it? Who do you serve? A faithful servant looks forward to that day when everything is laid bare and the attitudes and thoughts of the heart are made clear and brought into the light. Will you be found faithful? Friends, I exhort you this morning to be the church. Be found faithful and look forward to receiving praise from God. This is the promise of the gospel for you. Take hold of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is complex and beautiful and that a lot of times it feels as if it's reading us rather than us reading it. We pray that right now you would give each of us kind of a mini judgment day. That you would reveal to us sinful thoughts and attitudes, sinful behaviors that are out of line with what is required of those who have been saved by grace and entrusted with the truth of the gospel. Father, help us to confess those sins, to turn from them, and to trust in you afresh. Father, if there are any here who have not trusted you, pray that they would cast themselves upon your mercy, that they would believe, that they too might be found faithful because of the faithfulness of Christ on that last day. Father, help us to glory in you above all else. Stir up our affections for you above all else. Help us to live this light, this life in light of your coming judgment of us. A verdict which has already come down in Christ. Perfectly just. Perfectly holy. Praiseworthy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.